This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Thanks again for joining us. You are listening to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Ratio Christi. This is the show where we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true. I'm Keith Hendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And Kirk, today we are going to try to finish off this book that we have been talking about for seven shows now. This is going to be the eighth show on this, <laughs> but we I think we're going to finish it off today. Also, Online, check out our website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. And you can see archived shows there, or you can podcast us on iTunes. If you'd like to email us, you can email us at email at evidenceforfaith.com. And also be sure and check out the ratiochristi.org website. Well, Kirk, you missed an exciting show last week where we talked to students from Stockton College who went down to the Atheist Rally in Washington, D.C. Yes, I'm sorry I missed that one. Yeah, that was exciting. I was and away for a week. you actually weren't too far from there, right? Isn't Williamsburg's not that far away. Yes, uh, my wife and I spent the week in Williamsburg, Virginia, where uh, we spent our honeymoon 23 years ago. Wow, that's exciting. Well, this book that we're talking about is Me, the Professor, Fuzzy, and the Meaning of Life by David Pensgard. And David is a professor at Liberty University. And this is a terrific book. We've been going through it step by step. If you've enjoyed the podcasts or the radio shows, you will really want to get this. It's basically an experiment to see how far you can get just using logic and the things you can know for certain. And we've gotten really far, haven't we, Kurt? Yeah, quite far. So the last thing we left off with, I guess we'll pick up where we left off because we could finish out that and, and flesh that out a little bit more. And then I think what we'll do is review for everybody. So if you're just joining us the first time, we're going to step through this thought experiment point by point and see how far we've gotten. But where we left off with was a prophecy. We were looking at a prophecy that's in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. And it talks about a coming Messiah. And this is, of course, the Old Testament, so it's the Jewish Messiah that is being foretold here. In fact, I'm not sure, Kirk, but I believe... I read somewhere that this is the only verse in the Old Testament where the word Messiah itself is actually used. Hmm. Okay. So, anyways, there's a couple of, we were zooming in on two particular phrases that were in that. I guess, Kirk, if you want to read those, we'll start with those. It, it sounds a little funny, but just bear with us and we'll explain what it means. Okay, so this is from Daniel 9, verses 24 to 26 where he refers to from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there should be seven weeks and 62 weeks. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off. Okay, so it's a little bit strange because Daniel is using these terms sevens or weeks. Some translations say sevens, some say weeks. 
to mean a group of seven years instead of seven days. Right. But that was what was used in the Jewish calendar. Right. So if you do the math, it works out like this. The seven plus 62 weeks equals a total of 69 weeks, or so-called weeks, weeks of years. Right. So if you take that 70, 69 by seven years, then you get a total of 483 years. Now, right. we should mention that Daniel was written during the time that the Israelites were in captivity, so it was after the destruction of the first temple. So he's looking at when he's saying that there will be an edict go out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and then it, it says in another part of the verse that the temple will be destroyed again, and that is the second temple then. Right. So one other issue, so besides the difficulty of the weeks being years and things like that, there's another difficulty you'll see if you read up on this, you'll see a couple of different variations of this, and it's because there actually were several decrees from Artaxerxes, who was the king of Persia, to rebuild the temple. And so some people will count from a different decree date, and then they have, you know, it doesn't get quite as accurate, but it's still in that range of 30 to 33. But the reason I like this particular analysis is because it's the, it uses the only decree that included instructions to rebuild Jerusalem and the wall. Right. So, and that particular decree that we're talking about came in 454 BC. Right. So all you have to do is add 830, 800, ah, 483. Yeah, 483, thank you. <laughs> and you arrive at AD 30. Right. Now, if you, if you do it on a calculator, it comes out to 29, but actually there was no year zero. Right. So you go from 1 BC to 1 AD, so you have to allow for that, and so you arrive at AD 30. So, and this was the very year that Jesus was crucified, or as the prophecy says, cut off, which just means a, a public ex execution. Right. So, in A.D. 30, on the first Palm Sunday, and we just happen to be talking about this today on Palm Sunday, 2,000 years later. Yep. <laughs> uh, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem occurred on the 10th day of Nisan. So this is really significant because this was the same day as the selection of the Passover lamb. So if you go back to the book of Exodus and you read about how the Passover lamb was selected, it was done on the 10th day of Nisan. And in A.D. 30, the 10th day of Nisan was Sunday, Palm Sunday. So really fascinating. So we've got not only the prophecy but from Daniel 9, but we also have essentially a prophecy of Jesus being the lamb of God sacrificed so that God would pass over our sins right there in the book of Exodus. Right. So on that day, almost everybody in Jerusalem hailed Jesus as the Messiah. And in the Exodus story, you had to select and, and choose the perfect lamb, the unblemished lamb. You would examine the lamb, see if it was unblemished, and you would select it. So now this Daniel 9 prophecy specifies that the Messiah would then be cut off or executed. And this happened on the same day as the killing of the Passover lamb that happened on the 14th of Nisan. So just a fascinating uh, level of detail in this prophecy that really points to that it can only be Jesus Christ and that Jesus specifically fulfilled this prophecy. Now, another interesting thing is that the prophecy says that after the Messiah appears, the temple will be destroyed. 
And this happened in A.D. Uh, 70. Now, Kirk, I don't know if you have heard this. I actually heard this today since it was Palm Sunday. Our pastor was talking about Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And there's a really interesting prophecy that Jesus made where he described exactly how the city of Jerusalem would fall. And he talked about it being uh, barricaded around, which is exactly what they did, and that not one stone would be left upon another. And this prophecy is also repeated in the book of Mark. And do you know that even critics, skeptics of the New Testament, will tell you that the book of Mark was written before the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70? Hmm. So we have not only this fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament, from the book of Exodus and from Daniel, talking about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, but as he approached the city, he prophesied the doom of the city from AD 30, 40 years later, it happened just as Jesus described it. Jesus, of course, had been long dead, and the the accounts of the Gospels had been written, and even the skeptics will say that that was written before AD 70. So it's absolutely certain that no one else can be the Messiah. Why? Because the prophecy said that after the Messiah comes, the temple would be destroyed. The temple has already been destroyed. So there is no other Messiah coming. This is the only Messiah. Hmm. Wow. This is just an amazing fulfillment of prophecy made hundreds of years earlier. Daniel was written probably around 500 BC, but even if you want to go with a skeptical dating, they would say around 150 BC, and we do have actual copies of the book of Daniel from 150 BC, but there is historical records that show that the book of Daniel existed in the 400s. One of the reasons they'll say that it was written in 150 is because of a incident that happened in the temple where Antiochus arrived and slaughtered a a pig on the altar in the temple. And so they say that that's what is being described in this book of Daniel prophecy. And so after that happened, they wrote the prophecy down and made it look like it was going to be come forward. But for one thing, the one reason that can't be is because then it doesn't time out from the decree of Artaxerxes. The timing doesn't work. So that's one argument. But even if they did write this prophecy in 150 BC, it still didn't get fulfilled until 30 BC or AD. So, so it's still an amazing prophecy. And, and the other issue is that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's at least nine copies of the book of Daniel, so it's, which date back to 150. It's very unlikely if Daniel had only just been written, it's very unlikely that the Essenes would have accepted the book of Daniel uh, as scripture and there, that there would have been uh, nine copies that were preserved. So uh, lots of evidence that Daniel was written before and this is a truly amazing fulfillment of prophecy. So before we look at more prophecies about the Messiah, I think, Kirk, we should review. So let's just quickly, we're up to 29 things that we can know for certain. So if you want to just read through for those people who didn't get a chance to listen to the previous podcasts or radio shows. Okay, you want me to go through all 29? Might as well. Okay, here we go. Number one, you are thinking. Number two, thinkers exist. Number three, you exist. Number four, your thoughts require the passage of time. Number five, therefore you exist in time. Number six, Beginnings and endings are possible. Number seven, the outside world exists. 
Number eight, all events are caused. Number nine, the entropy of the universe is always increasing. Number ten, the universe is winding down. Number eleven, the universe had a beginning. Number twelve, the presence of motion requires an original mover. Number thirteen, presence of complexity requires a designer. Okay, number fourteen, the universe could not have begun on its own. Number fifteen, the universe is unable to sustain itself. Number sixteen, our universe is inadequate; it cannot stand alone. Number seventeen, there must be more. The supernatural. Number eighteen, something supernatural ordered our universe. Number nineteen, that something was the prime mover. Number twenty, that prime mover is omnipotent. Number twenty-one. It is also eternal. Number twenty-two. It is infinitely intelligent. Number twenty-three. It is omniscient. Number twenty-four. God therefore exists. Number twenty-five. All philosophies that deny the existence of God therefore are incorrect. Number twenty-six. All pantheistic religions are incorrect. Okay. Twenty-seven. All polytheistic religions, therefore, are incorrect as well. And number twenty-eight, agnosticism is incorrect if any religion is correct. <laughs> and what do I have? Twenty-nine. Yeah. One more. Uh, let's see where it is on my list here. Twenty-nine. Twenty-nine. I got it. Who What's... is Jesus? Okay. Right. So That's... we're asking a question because we've gotten down to that either agnosticism is true or one of the three major religions, Judaism, Christianity, or Islam, is true. Right. And since all three of these religions deal with the subject of who is Jesus, then um, by answering that question, we'll be able to tell if one of those three religions is correct. Right. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking about a book called Me, the Professor Fuzzy, and the Meaning of Life by David Pensgard. And what you just heard was a list of the things that we can know for certain just building on logic and, the, and building on previous things that we know for certain. And we've gotten quite far. So we're now asking the question, who is Jesus? Is Jesus the Messiah? Judaism said that there was a Messiah coming. Jesus said that the Messiah came. And Islam says that Jesus is not the Messiah. So we looked at a terrific prophecy, the Daniel 9 prophecy. So I think what we'll do, Kirk, is just briefly mention all these prophecies. And there are many books written on this topic. There are many articles that you can find. Some of these prophecies are very strong. Some of them are not so strong. So I think you have to just take a peek and and examine this stuff for yourself. But for those who maybe are not familiar with just how incredibly strong the evidence of the prophecies is, I think maybe we'll just read the what the what the prophecy is of and I don't think we need to give all the Bible verses. I think people should investigate it themselves further. So but this'll just give for our listeners an idea of how thorough uh, the list of prophecies prophecies is. So it says Messiah would be born of a woman. Messiah, this is prophecies from the Old Testament about the Messiah. Okay. Messiah was to be descended from Abraham. 
Messiah to be born of Jacob, Messiah to be descended from Judah, the son of Jacob, Messiah to be descended from King David, Messiah to be crucified, mentioned in Psalm 22. And then I should also mention that these were then fulfilled as described in the New Testament. Okay. Messiah will be pierced. Messiah will be killed in Isaiah 50. Homage and tribute would be paid to the Messiah from great kings, mentioned in Psalm 72. Messiah to be born of a virgin, Isaiah chapter 7. The Messiah would begin his teaching in Galilee, Isaiah 9. The Messiah would be gentle, mild, and meek, Isaiah 42. Messiah will not exclude the Gentiles in his mission, Isaiah 42. The message the Messiah will bring, as written in Isaiah, matches the message that Jesus did bring, Isaiah 52. The Messiah will perform miracles, Isaiah 35. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5. Messiah will enter the temple with authority as the messenger of God, Malachi chapter 3. Messiah will enter Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah 9. He did that on Palm Sunday, which is today. What's that? He did that on Palm Sunday, which is today. That's right. Yep, 2,000 years ago. Yep. Messiah will be forsaken by his disciples, Zechariah 13. They would cast lots for his clothing rather than divide it among themselves, Psalm 22. Although he was to die as a criminal, his grave would be that of a rich man, Isaiah 53. The Messiah would be bought with 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah chapter 11. Messiah to be betrayed by a friend, Psalm 41. Messiah to be the Son of God, Psalm 2. Messiah to be raised from the dead, Psalm 16. Messiah will ascend into heaven, Psalm 68. Messiah will be both God and man, Jeremiah 23. So that's just 27 of the prophecies, and there are many, many more. I've seen counts above 100. I I was going to say, I think I've heard that there's over 200 of them, isn't there? Yeah. um, You know, it depends on what you count. Some of them, like I said, are much stronger than others. Some of them, it's kind of like, you know, when you're at Disney World and you know that they hide uh, Mickey Mouse heads around, you know, you get those, the big ears of Mickey Mouse, those three circles. Right. And you look around, you say, oh, look, there's a hidden Mickey. Okay. Now, sometimes it's not so clear. And... (laughs) People could argue, no, 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 that's just a natural occurrence. Nobody, it just happened that way. Nobody made that. That's not a hidden Mickey. Okay, but (laughs) now if you didn't believe that that's what what Disneyland does, then a lot of the hidden Mickeys wouldn't, you would just say, oh, it's just a coincidence. Look, uh, anytime three circles get together, you could say it was a hidden Mickey. But since we know that Disney World does do that. When you see it, you can say, aha, there's another example. Sometimes, you know, you'll see this in a movie where there will be a theme and the cinematographer will hide these different maybe references to other movies or a certain theme that is going along. And you'll see something in the background or you'll, you know, just a a glancing shot. You'll see and you can spot it. Ah, you know that the the cameraman or the the, uh, director put that in there on purpose. And so, again, you know, some of these are not the strongest prophecies, but looking at it backwards, you can see, yeah, you know what? This definitely was 
a kind of a, a hidden Mickey, I guess you might call it. <laughs> Boy, and, uh, I, I can and tell you. You do get the full picture. But, but if you don't accept those, then you know what? There are plenty of them that are very strong, just like the Daniel 9 prophecy. Well, I was just going to say, like the 27 ones that you just read, you could leave out the word Jesus or Messiah and just read all of those, and almost anyone would say afterwards, well, you're talking about Jesus there. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly. so obvious. I have done the same thing, Kirk, where I have read Isaiah chapter 52 to people and then asked them who this was about, and they'll say it's about Jesus, and is this from the Old Testament or the New Testament? And they'll say the New Testament. <laughs> And I'll say, no, this is not from the New Testament. This is the Old Testament. This is a prophecy about Jesus. Yeah. So, now, we need to point out that the record of the fulfillments are all from the New Testament. So, we've got this question now, is this a valid source of dependable historical information? After all, we're relying on the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to give us an account of of Jesus's life to determine, did Jesus actually fulfill all the prophecies? Right. So, close examination really shows that the Gospels are more dependable and valid than almost any other ancient text that we know in history. So, incredibly reliable. Mm -hmm. Think about this. Jesus was a very public figure in Israel, right? Right. At the time, there probably wasn't a single Jewish person that had not heard of Jesus, and probably a great many of them had actually heard him teaching. After all, from the written accounts, he spoke to thousands and thousands of people at a time. Right. So, if the disciples had lied about the facts or made any changes in their accounts, then everybody would have known about it. Sure. So, it's just the case that there were too many eyewitnesses to who Jesus really was for these Gospels to be manufactured. And all four also, of the Gospels were written within a few years of Jesus' lifetime, so most of the people that had known him and heard him were still alive, were still around. That's right. That's right. There's, there's recent evidence from a critical scholar, non-Christian scholar, that uh, his work shows that the book of Mark is definitely from the 40s. Uh, A.D. 40s, hmm. uh, based on its uh, internal, uh, the writings that he studied and how it talks about the law. That was um, the way the law was referred to in the 40s. So, uh, lots and lots of evidence that the, the accounts were early. We have also, of course, all the early adoption of creeds that uh, Jesus rose from the dead and things. Um, the worship being transferred from Saturday to Sunday, happening um, very early on within a couple of years. So, all of this leads to the reliability of the gospel accounts. Think about, and, and David Pensgard in his book, Me, the Professor Fuzzy and the Meaning of Life, concentrates a little bit on the book of Luke because this was written by a physician, a, a man of the science of the day. So, you could call him Dr. Luke. <laughs> and he wrote an extremely well-researched piece of historical workmanship. He's been credited with being incredibly accurate down to the smallest detail. Things like the names of obscure towns, small towns and cities, he got exactly right. The names of people, historical figures, and also their titles. This is a, a big area where people writing, even a few decades later, will get things like titles wrong because titles frequently changed. You know, they would appoint a new person, and the new person didn't like the old title. He didn't want to be called governor. He wanted to be called tetrarch. 
So for a couple of years, in a very obscure place, you'd have this person being called Tetrarch. And Luke, when Luke talked about these people, he got it exactly right. So many secular historians have commented on how, how uh, the quality of job that Luke did. He says that he, Luke interviewed uh, numerous eyewitnesses and spent time putting all of the accounts together. So both the internal and the external evidence shows that the accounts were early, and although they shared a core body of teachings, probably things that the disciples had memorized or possibly had written down, mm-hmm. they also remain independent attestations, which gives a lot of credibility uh, to their validity. Mm-hmm. So we can know with a high degree of certainty that the Gospels are dependable and accurate, which means that Jesus fulfills the requirements for Messiah perfectly. All we need now is some kind of divine verification, because remember, we've been asking the question, if if God wanted us to know, right, if, if agnosticism is not true and God wants us to know about him, therefore one of the major religions is correct, we would expect that he would provide some divine verification, some kind of evidence that he was more than just a prophet. Right. And this really isn't hard for Jesus because hundreds of people saw Jesus after he was crucified. And not surprisingly, these people became the first Christians since they had seen with their own eyes the most compelling piece of evidence that there ever was a man come back from the dead. Right, and, and it completely changed the disciples from uh, frightened cowards that were hiding out, afraid that the authorities were going to come after them next, to all of a sudden going out and boldly proclaiming this and enduring all kinds of punishments and everything else for doing it, and they kept doing it. That's they right. Just changed, fact, their character the changed overnight. They've even gone back to their old jobs. They've yeah. gone back to fishing for a living. Right. And then all so of a sudden. So they were not interested in trying to promote some kind of a, a new religion on their own and get themselves killed. Yeah, at first, they, you know, they apparently they figured, well, it's all over. You know, let's go back to our old life. But then yep. uh, Jesus appeared to them, and all of a sudden they changed into completely different people. That's right. And you had the the brothers of Jesus, which we know did not believe in him, and the brothers of Jesus became believers. Also, Paul, who was trying to exterminate Christianity, uh, saw Jesus and was converted. So, there are all kinds of very strong evidential lines of reasoning that show that uh, Jesus did rise from the dead. Right. I I have also heard it put that uh, if you discount the resurrection of Jesus, you still have to come up with, with an explanation for why all these people changed overnight. And there really is no other explanation that right. fits the evidence. And we are going to go next week, we're going to have an interesting guest, Eric Chabot, who is going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus from a messianic and from a a Jewish perspective. He's done a lot of Jewish studies, so this is going to be a really interesting uh, talk about the resurrection. So if you if you'd like more information about the resurrection, just tune in next week or listen to the podcast next week. And I guess I should uh, let people know if you're just tuning in that you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks, and I'm Kirk Hastings. And we're talking about the meaning of life. If you'd like to call in and join in the conversation, you can call us at 609-398-1020. We'll take any questions or comments. 
the meaning of life we're talking about is described in this book, Me, the Professor Fuzzy, and the Meaning of Life by David Pensgard. And we've arrived, just by using logic and the things we can know for certain, we've arrived at the conclusion that one of the three major religions is true or agnosticism is true. If we can determine that one of them is true, uh, then we know agnosticism is false. So, looking at the messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, this is bad news for Islam because the Quran says that no one can ever come back from the dead. And since we have strong evidence that Jesus did indeed do that, we have the four verified written accounts, we have the fact that more than 500 eyewitnesses saw him, and we have the fulfilled prophecies that said he would, then the Quran seems to be in error at this point. And in addition, remember the fact that the Messiah who was foretold actually did come right on time, yet Islam says that there is no Messiah and that we never needed one. There's no savior for mankind. So that's two major errors. And for a third, the Quran also claims, believe it or not, that the Gospels are also Holy Scripture from Allah. Think of that. Hmm. So, even though the Quran says that the Gospels are spoken by Allah, the main topic of all four Gospels is Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the one and only Son of God. Yet, Islam not only denies that Jesus was the Messiah, but even that he was crucified. Hmm. So, so, so we got a major contradiction going there. Yep, it does look like of the three religions we can relegate Islam uh, to the ash heap of history. The entire Bible, Old and New Testament, has Jesus as the Messiah as its central theme throughout. And this is actually a, another strong evidence for the Bible. The Bible took 2,000 years to write by 40 different people who lived at different times, different cultures, different places, and yet it remains single-minded in its theme, all about the coming Messiah and the Messiah who did come. No book has been challenged and tested as much as the, Bi the Bible since its completion. Which brings us to strike number four for Islam, because the Bible ends with a statement of completion that was written in A.D. 90. It's in the book of Revelation, and it warns that there should be added to God's, re re there should be nothing added to God's revelation and nothing subtracted from it. And that's found in Revelation 22, 18, and 19. So really what that's saying is if anybody says, uh, comes up with a new religion after AD 90, it's, it can't be a true religion then. Yeah, exactly. And guess what? That is exactly what Muhammad did in AD 610. Well, Kirk, we've got a couple of callers, so why don't we go ahead and take our first caller. Caller, tell us your name and where you're calling from. Anonymous, Atlantic City. How you doing? Great. Uh, Go ahead, Anonymous. Well, the meaning of life you spoke about. Yes. I believe that's to put on the character of God, to follow his commandments, to offer the body as chaste and pure, in order to enter the family of God, the kingdom of God, after the first death. That's now, my after death. After the first death, what do you mean? Well, I believe there's two deaths. This one, okay. and uh, after the millennium, when, we're all, when Christ comes back and we're all there for a thousand years, the ones who uh, figure it out first will be the priests and the teachers to teach those thousand, I mean those many people that missed it by ignorance or just not knowing, and that if they don't get it during the millennium, they will be uh, hellfire, second death, 
two lives, gotcha. two, two lives, two deaths. All right. So you're with us that Christianity provides the meaning of life. Yes, I do. And uh, you guys have said some things that uh, people don't know about, that that's why I prompted my call. And that was that Jesus was from a family of about nine people. Because when he came in, they said, uh, who's this goofball here? Yeah, that's right. His brothers and sisters didn't believe in him. And they had, he had four brothers, and, uh, and his sisters are with us, so that's about seven. And you had J- Mary and Joseph, and you got about nine. And yep. yeah, from when he was left in the temple, they didn't believe that he was uh, as pure and as straight as he was. And the Bible even says that he was very rich and that he was very ugly. So yep. that's what I do with people when you're discussing it with them. I ask him those questions if they know he had brothers and sisters and uh, things of that sort, and uh, they don't know. So that means right. they never read yeah, they it. They haven't but, been reading their Bible. Right. They don't read it, and they'll tell you they did, and they'll lie to your face and take the Lord's name in vain. Three other contradictions, if I may. Sure. He, he entered Palm Sunday. They call it Palm Sunday. But they, he entered this day. Monday night he set up the dinner for Tuesday night. He was busted Tuesday night. They brought him to the pavement Wednesday, crucified him Wednesday afternoon. Wednesday to Thursday night is one. Thursday to Friday night is two. Friday to Saturday evening after the Sabbath is three. If he's in the belly of the whale three days, as Jonah was in death, when he rises, you'll know it's him. And when the woman went to the tomb, these are for the people that worship the sun. When he was in the tomb, when she went to the tomb, the angel told her he has risen. But the main clue is it was still dark. It was nothing to do with the rising of the sun, and it was still dark. That means it was like Saturday evening after the Sabbath into the dark of the night. And then uh, we don't want to kill Christmas on this trip, but I just wanted to call you guys and let you to know that you're, got, you're on it. Anonymous, what did you think? Have you been listening to this process that we've gone through, this step-by-step over the yeah, past seven shows? Yeah, I heard the 29. Shows? This is the first time I had an opportunity to listen for, to your show from the okay. beginning. Great. Well, I'd you like can, to be on your show with you one day. You can catch the earlier shows um, at evidenceforfaith.com. Thank you, yeah, Anonymous. We've Thank got to go to Talk our to you later. other caller. He's been holding on the line. Caller, give us your name and where are you calling from? Hi, Keith. Uh, this is Rick from Allentown, New Jersey. You're sounding great up here. Oh, great. Do you get the actual 1020 uh, signal so up there? Spirituality today. And obviously, agnosticism seems to be growing. Uh, not so much atheism, but how does it relate to the end time scenario? Well, in my view, the end times, I think that atheism and agnosticism will become more dominant. Now, and, and we do see that happening, but that doesn't mean that necessarily, um, you know, this is the immediate end times. We've actually been in the end times for the past 2,000 years. So, although I do see things um, progressing rapidly, and it could be that um, within the next maybe even a couple of years, couple of decades, um, we, we th- see things being fulfilled, That'd be, that would be exciting. But still, you know, the, the amount of atheists in the world has risen and fallen uh, in the past. So uh, it wouldn't be surprised that if we get busy and uh, be about our father's business, that we might convert some of these people and might uh, slow things down a bit. That's my explanation. It, it's quite interesting because so many things seem to be coming into play, especially with the, the uh, challenge to our uh, walk with the Lord these days. Could you comment on that? 
Well, you know, for me, the most exciting thing is all the evidences that's showing that uh, Christianity is true. There's so much every you know, month or so you open up the newspaper and there's some new evidence that shows that Christianity is really true. And this has to just give us confidence that we can get out there and witness um, because what we have is really true. All right. Thank you, caller. That was good. Did you say it was Rick? All right. I think I recognize your voice, Rick. It's wonderful of you yes, to call. As a matter of fact, Keith, we, we absolutely love your program. And oh, great. what's fascinating about it is it, it has such purity, and uh, we're thrilled that you can bring evidence for faith to a world that needs Christ more than ever. Yeah, that's true. That is so true. Thanks for calling, Rick. I really appreciate it. And we appreciate you, Keith. Thanks. That's interesting. All right. So we have an Allentown, New Jersey, as well as an Allentown, Pennsylvania, huh? Well, that was Rick Brancadora, who is the owner of the station. I see. So that was very nice. It was nice to hear that he's listening to the show. Ooh, Well, Kirk, I think we left off. We were um, talking about the fact that Muhammad added to the revelation that the book of Revelation says there should be no more uh, revelations. Right. And this really is another way to rule out the cults as well, because they, many of the cults claim to be an extension of Christianity via some subsequent revelation from God. So things like Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Mormonism, we know that these things cannot be true because the revelation says that there will be nothing added and nothing should be taken away. Right. So, when so they any claim, belief... When they claim to be based on subsequent revelations from God after A.D. 90, the Bible is saying, nope, they're not. That's correct. Any belief that claims that Jesus, uh, you know, claims Jesus is one of their holy men and yet contradicts who he was or what he says is in error. Right. So where does that leave us? How far have we gotten? We've ruled out Islam as a viable religion since it doesn't stand up to the facts. We've examined compelling historical and prophetic evidence that Jesus fills all the requirements for being Messiah. And we've seen evidence that many miraculous and unique events verify his claims to the title, the most amazing being Uh, that he came back from the dead. Hmm. So let's think about Judaism now. Modern Judaism obviously then started out with the right idea, but it took a wrong turn. We now know that agnosticism is proven to be incorrect because Christianity is proven correct. So Christianity not only fits what we know about God, but it's abundantly proved by historical, prophetic, and miraculous events. And it is completely unique in this respect. Mm-hmm. Even the other major religions, Judaism and Islam, do not have the miracles, the prophecies that you have in Christianity. So there is no other religion that is verified in such a powerful way. And few things are as well documented as Jesus's life and deeds. I mean, everybody wants a piece of Jesus, right? All the religions want and say, yeah, Jesus is one of our followers, right? Or one of our leaders. He's one of our gurus. Right. But no other religion has such an amazing accuracy for its uh, predicted prophecies. So we asked, remember number 29, we asked the question, who was Jesus? Right. So... Let's now turn that question into an answer. Number 29, answer, Jesus is God the Messiah. 
So Jesus was truly God and truly man according to scripture and he is he is the savior of humanity. And David brings up in his book he re- brings up a really important point that if if anybody really looks at this universe and if they study the completeness and the accuracy of the history found in the Bible then they actually would find that they can see the hand of God at work not only in creation because God created everything and all of wonderful design but he can see you can see the working of God in the lives the ordinary lives of everyday people people like you and me with real problems and and we know there are lots of listeners out there with problems and you can read in the bible how god worked with people who have problems not perfect people people like abraham like moses like david like paul people like us just regular people and it shows us that we can really know that the bible can be trusted that we can look at what it reveals about the meaning of life. So if you want to know the meaning of life, it's what the Bible says it is. The Bible is exactly what it claims to be, a message directly from God to all of mankind. And it explains where we're coming from, it explains why we're here, where we're going. So the question then is, what does it say about why we're here? What is the meaning of life? Okay, well, We'll finish up with this because it's extremely simple. Number 30, and I think it's neat that we end on 30. <laughs> the meaning of life is Jesus. Jesus you, said there you in go. John. Yeah. It took us eight weeks life. to get there. <laughs> exactly. Could have told you that eight weeks ago. <laughs> Jesus said in John 14, 6. Do you want to read that, Kirk? Sure. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Right? So Jesus is the way. Jesus is the life, the meaning of life. Jesus is the truth. So that statement is extremely, you know, has extremely important consequences. So let's just, for those who maybe are not familiar with the Bible, let's just quickly go over several important issues that the Bible brings up. The Bible says, number one, that everyone is born with a sinful, selfish heart as descendants from Adam, the first man. Number two, all sin and evil are crimes committed against God himself. This is very important to realize. We don't just commit crimes against other people because God created us and expected us to act in a certain way. When we don't act that way, we commit crimes against God. Mm-hmm. God's nature is justice. He cannot allow evil into his presence. That's the third item. Fourth item that we learn from the Bible, God has provided a way for justice to be met, for our crimes to be accounted for, and for our redemption. Number five, this miracle of redemption is made through Jesus because he is both fully God and fully man, he was able and willing to take the punishment upon himself. So Jesus fulfilled the righteous demands and the justice of God. But number six, very important, each individual must repent and ask Jesus to bear their crimes for them. So you must turn to repent means to turn away from your sins. You must recognize your sins are wrong, they're evil, and you have to to Uh, turn from them and ask Jesus to bear the punishment for you. 
And G- here's uh, John three sixteen through 17. This is Jesus speaking. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So as uh, David Pensgard finishes up in his book, that is why we're all here, to give everyone as much time and encouragement as possible to realize this simple fact and to act on it. So religions and, and different philosophies come and go like fads, but belief in God's promise of a Savior, the Messiah, has remained unchanged since the beginning. Remember, there's a prophecy about the coming Messiah in Genesis chapter 3. So at the fall of Adam and Eve, God made a promise for the Messiah. Genesis chapter 3:14 says, "And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed." Right? Women don't have seed, but a woman would give birth to someone, and it says, "It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel." So Satan would bruise Jesus, but Jesus would crush the power of Satan. So all the way back from the beginning of the world, it was prophesied that there would be a Messiah, and that is the Messiah that we need to turn to. So no matter how thoroughly you test it, no matter what you compare it to, the belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the only true Savior the world will ever see always comes out on top. And, you know, Kirk and I don't know, and, and David Pensgard certainly doesn't know if you've, as a listener, been convinced or not, but uh, it was never really our intention to uh, out-argue you or to bully you down. All we wanted to do was to remove some of the logical and rational obstacles from your path that were keeping you from seeing the truth. So the Bible says that you can't understand the truth unless God illuminates it for you. This is found in 1 Corinthians 2.14. In other words, you need his help to find the truth. So remember, nothing is more important than finding the truth. So ask for help. Ask for help from God and study hard. We all truly hope that you succeed. And that's what we're here for every week, to help people to uh, encourage them to understand the truth and why it is the truth. Absolutely. The evidence that supports it. Yep. And you have been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. If you would like Kirk or me to come and speak at your church or event, you can email us at email at evidenceforfaith.com. Please join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah!